Podcast Nation. Today's episode, I sit down and interview a pilot, Matt Cardiagini. Enjoy. When hate is loud, love must be louder. Wear our clothes as a reminder that we're the ones who love anyways. www.morelovenation.com Hostel du Nord. The five-star experience without the five-star price. The only hostel of its kind in the Twin Ports area. www.hosteldunord.com The book now. So green, you're good. Green you should be just talking to it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, a lot of people get on the show and then they start to get a ways away from the microphone. Gotcha. Three, two, one. folks, L-I-V-E here at the Weirman Media Studios. There we go. <laughs> Good little shot there. Get the... Hello, folks. Thanks for being with us. If you are with us, if you're not, it's no big deal. Either way, we appreciate it. Love it or hate it, we say at Weirman Media Studios that we appreciate your attention. Your attention is our oxygen, as I say. So uh, ultimately, everything that we do here at Weirman Media Studios comes back to hearing perspectives and ideas from others. Because like for me, I oftentimes have ideas and perspectives that are pretty, I'm passionate about them and I believe in them, but it's really crucial that we share our perspectives and ideas with others and that we ask them theirs because ultimately when we start to learn and grow from other people, that's when we can challenge our own ideas and perspectives and ideologies. And that's one of my favorite things about staying at the Hostel du Nord. Shout out to the Hostel du Nord. Thanks for being with us, folks. And uh, last night I was having some really cool conversations with uh, this really cool, smart guy here who's training to become a pilot. A pilot right here in the small town of Carlton. So yeah, we had some really cool conversations and I thought he has some really cool perspectives. But ultimately, I'm going to let him give a little bit of a small backstory on himself and then we'll lean into a little bit of his story and his experience and what he's doing now with becoming a pilot, having two undergraduate degrees, I believe, in two different things. And yeah, we'll just go from there. So you've lived all over, right, Matt? And how do you say your last name again, Matt? Uh, Cortigiani. Cortigiani. So just give us a little bit of a backstory on... Your like your upbringing and just how you've ended up the person you are and like yeah. just so people have a little bit like of like a three to four or five minute backstory on who you are. Yeah, for sure. So yeah. I was I was uh, originally born in New Jersey and I uh, lived there through high school and uh, you know grew up in uh, just that white middle class summer just like everyone else I guess. Uh, then moved to Vermont, lived there for a little while, did my uh, college degrees there, ended up with a bachelor's of arts in Italian studies. And exercise science and at the time really loved healthcare was super passionate about okay how do I how can I help people how can I be a better person and make the world a better place and you know leave my mark etc etc yeah yeah that's super cool yeah and what small town did you come from in New Jersey Basking Ridge New Jersey Basking I'm gonna have to look that up yeah yeah for sure so then you were going to school for what medical field exactly uh, I was well, I wanted to get my doctor of physical therapy cool Nice. Yeah. yeah, that would be a real. That's a really crucial industry. I feel like that's really cool. I grew up with a mom that was uh, sick, so I always appreciate nurses and doctors and stuff because it is a huge impact. Cool. Yeah. No, I, I, they they do amazing work, and I wouldn't take away from 
just what they do for a second. Yeah, but then you found out that you might not have been that interested in that. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I I guess hindsight's twenty twenty. you know, it seemed like, uh, it seems so obvious in my head, you know, when I, uh, when I think back on it. But yeah, I went, I got into the Washington University in St. Louis School of Medicine. Uh, it was at the time, I don't know if it still is, it was the number one ranked program in its, in its discipline nice. in the country. And I was super psyched to be, you know, this great physical therapist and then got eight months into the program and I was hating every minute of it. I couldn't stand waking up and going to, going to class, going to my clinicals and whatever. So ended up leaving, uh, Wash U and, uh, kind of down on my luck, knew that I loved aviation, I'd worked like rampage jobs, you know, just hauling bags and stuff throughout the For free, and you had free flight privileges. Yes, That's free nice. flights, that was an awesome, an awesome little perk. Um, Probably a great gig for anyone in college, right? Yes, no, I would, I would heavily recommend it. Anybody who's in college or has a little bit of spare time, a lot of these airlines, maybe not so much right, right now with COVID and everything, but... Um, yeah. There are these regional airlines, they're, they're desperate for bodies, they love for people to come on who, you know, have a clean record, can do uh, whatever, and then in exchange, you can throw bags for 10 to, 10 to 35 hours a week, depending on the company. And, and now you can fly anywhere you want, for you can, free. You can fly anywhere you want, as long as there's an unsold seat on that plane, you can fly wherever that, that airline's metal flies, so yeah, heavily recommend it to anyone who wants to see the yeah, because for me, traveling is a big part of my story, and I know it is yours because it, it made me open my mind and perspective to other people's way of living and not just my own ideas and my own perspectives of the world. For me, getting out and going to Hawaii and other other places really helped that. So I, I agree. That's a great point. Yeah. So then you, so you're, at that point now, you're bagging luggage. And yeah. You just and you're liking it a lot more than when you were. Uh, in the the medical field and so forth i think that's a great point another thing i want to mention is the roi in life should be happiness not not just money i think that's a great point you're making that you found yourself a lot of people that's a great perspective to have at a young age that you had because i feel like a lot of people spend their whole life trying to find something that they really enjoy and it sounds like you started to really find that yeah no i guess you could say like through a bit of a catastrophic personal failure there's you know that aspect of the phoenix and out of that out of that fire comes you know out of the ashes comes the, the, the happiness. So yeah, no, I um, down on my luck. I just left school, and uh, there's actually a Facebook personality uh, amongst aviation, amongst people in aviation. His name is Captain Roger Victor. He's you know this guy who has a, a puppet and makes Captain jokes. Roger Victor. Yes, I've never heard of him. Look him up. He's he's an amazing guy. He's super funny. I mean. Some of his humor might be a little bit over the head of someone who's not pretty in, into aviation, but he's a funny guy. Anyway, I asked, I, I Facebook messaged him, figure, what do I have to lose? And he's like, hey, you know, I'm in this path. I'm really unhappy. I want to, I want to get into being a pilot. You know, aviation's the only industry I've really loved. Uh, what should I do? And he said, well, here's what you do. You know, this company, Transstates Airlines, are hiring crew schedulers. Put your application in today. Start your your flight training at this school. And uh, from that, his advice, it kind of took foot. And uh, between one thing and another, um, we ended up, my girlfriend and I, moving to Salt Lake City. And, uh, from where? Where we got that time? We were in St. Louis, Missouri. We had both actually dropped out of uh, Washington University at, within like a week of each other, just by coincidence. She was at the undergrad side, and I was on the, the med school side. And I guess, you know, just ended up finding each other and... One thing led to another. We moved to Utah together. That's beautiful. Thanks, man. I think that's a great point, though, the whole coming from failure and stuff. Because in my life, my whole, my most valuable experience comes from my failures. 
A lot of people look back on their life and they think that they don't want to fail, but I think we look at failure wrong and risk taking wrong. Where I think at a young age you should do exactly what you mentioned right, right now, where you tried and you tasted something and then you found out, oh, I don't like the taste of this, let me taste this. I feel like at a younger age you should be less about taking on bad debt and more about pursuing taking risks and tasting things to find out what you love and what you enjoy and then lean into that. Like it sounds like that's kind of a microcosm of what you're doing. And for me, that's a big part of my story. When my moving company flourished and did well and all the things I've done with sculpting statues and traveling, I found myself through taking risks and tasting things and then I found out what I enjoyed. So I think that's a really cool point. And I love flying myself, so that's really cool. So then moving forward, um, what would you say uh, brought you then from that point forward now to where you are today? So now let's just connect the dots from there yeah, to, to here. Yeah, so, so from there, one of the reasons that we moved from uh, Missouri to Utah, apart from reasons that were beneficial to my girlfriend, which may not be super relevant right yeah, now, yeah. is uh, the aviation weather in Missouri is pretty terrible. Um, the aviation weather? Yeah, so I mean, during, during the winter, it's so humid out there, and you have this kind of... Uh, with the weather, as your temperature starts lowering and you have more humidity, the air is able to, ca- to carry less moisture and it precipitates into clouds. So you have this super, super humid uh, environment and you just go a couple hundred feet up, it cools off just a little bit and all of a sudden you have clouds at 900 feet above the ground for most of the winter. So terrible flight conditions. Terrible flight conditions when you're doing your... Uh, your training, yeah. So out in Utah, it's very sunny, it's very warm, um, and they don't really get. I mean, they they still get tons and tons of snow, but uh, and we could go on and on about how weather works, but yeah. uh, <laughs> get ton- which is really cool. <laughs> I love the variables of weather, and I think it's a really interesting topic. But yeah, so then a lot of it had to do with your circumstances and her circumstances, and you ended up back there. Yeah, it was, it was the best. We were actually considering Minneapolis and Salt Lake at the same time. Just, you know, luck of the draw ended up in Salt Lake. So could have just as easily been Salt Lake. Salt Lake looks amazing. I've never been there, but I would love to go. So growing, so let's lean into that a little bit. Another part of the story, my big part of my show is, as I said, it's about sharing people's perspectives and, and, and ideologies so that I can challenge myself and that you also realize that when, no matter what, you have value. Everyone has value. Even if you're 21 years old and you don't have experience, you have a very unique perspective of the world that you could share that's valuable. So one of the things and some of the reasons we do this is to bring people on the show and show that we all have value. You have value. Someone out there, whether you think it or not, you have some expertise, insight, or idea that you have that you can bring value forward on. So like with you here, you're bringing value forward, and I want to lean into one of the things that I talk about a lot on my show, which is religion, because I think some of the people are just reading about fictional stories, and I think it's one of the great examples of something that controls people and they don't even realize that they're fearfully choosing to do something just because everyone else is doing it. So like growing up in Utah, I just want to get your perspective on like, because I know you mentioned a little bit of this last night about how you have the extremes of like someone that is into religion and the extremes of like someone that completely rebels against it. And yeah. Just just lean into that a little bit and give your ideas and perspectives on and insight on that, having grown up in such a great state, but also one that is heavily influenced by religion. Yeah, and I mean, again, so I, I've only been living in Utah for about six or seven months right now. Got so, it. Um, what I've kind of noticed is, yeah, if, if you ever get a chance to come out to, uh, to Utah, Salt Lake City specifically, um, the church's presence is completely unavoidable. You, you'd have to be living under a rock to not know. The city of Salt Lake is, you know, kind of 50-50 Mormons and non-Mormons, but once you step outside, it's very Mormon. Um, 
So yeah, I noticed something kind of very interesting moving there is you have, you know, some people who are like, hey, you know, why don't you come to church with me? Or here's this link to our video chat with church. And you say, okay, well, you know, I, I appreciate you keeping me in mind, but um, I you know, thank you. But you, you see that there are a lot of people who have this deep-seated hatred for the Mormon church that goes beyond their, uh, beyond just their demeanor but also their physical appearance you know the mormon church says no tattoos and there's people you know from their forehead down to their ankles covered in tattoos as a kind of middle finger to the mormon church so it's it's interesting to to see how i guess when their when their presence is so strong and i mean it's so strong that like you you can't go shopping in the main in the main city in the main mall in the city on sundays because the church is closed on sunday really but yeah these people who just Wow, I hate the Mormon Church so strongly. It's, it's an interesting thing to see. Yeah, it is interesting. That's why I like to lean into that. I actually want to shout out to the recovery atheist, uh, Del Bacon. We just had an episode the other day. He is the recovery atheist, as I said. And his show is just on that. It's on auditing religions and the power of believing in religion and the manipulation of the religion. And I think there's lots of good things that can come from religion. Don't get me wrong. Like believing in something that is about better, bettering yourself, being a part of your community, and pursuing being a better human great but i just think there's a large part of religion that complicates simple spiritual principles and gets people to follow people because they're fearful i just feel like it's a lot of fear manipulation as opposed to let's look at how we can just come together as humans and like just take care of each other and i feel like when we look at some of the biggest obstacles for us to come together i feel like religion keeps us more divided than anything is like as far as besides money yeah, so like once you realize that as a species, a big part of us moving forward is our ability to cooperate in a flexible fashion, coming together and working together in a cooperative, flexible fashion. And our strength comes from being together and working together, not broken apart, mad at each other, and divided. And when I, the reason I lean into that topic and ask you that is because to me, I think religion is one of the biggest obstacles to you. That's just my opinion. That's why I think it's a big deal. Because I like to try and cooperate with anyone and get along with anyone. But it seems like religion kind of pits us against each other. Yeah, no, that's a that's a very valid point. And I think it's something that we got to keep in mind too is if you have these areas where, you know, the majority is all of one mindset of all of one thing. So, you know, say that you're you're growing up, you're growing up not necessarily Mormon, you're just growing up in a, in a religious society that your entire network, your entire understanding of the outside world is steeped in that society, in, in the context of, of that lens. So I think that's uh, it's something that like terrifies a lot of people, because I've spoken to a few, they're called Jack Mormons, you know, people who are Mormon that renounce the church, is, okay, you leave the church, but then consistent with your experience up to that point, there's nothing else. You know, there there is no outside world other than the church. And again, not that's, that... So that is their world, yeah, I, say. I think that's a great point. Me and my brother had an episode of Honest Harmony versus Dishonest. Honest conflict versus Dishonest Harmony. And I feel like a lot of what you're talking about is people lack the ability to commune with others with different opinions, different political views, different religion back, religious backgrounds, different skin colors, and different sexes. And for me, that's really interesting because if you think about the bigger we get, as a, as a, we have all these complexities going on in America right now where we have all these people that can't get along with people from other political sides of the aisle with certain religious views and for me I think a beautiful part of having traveled the world and I think having someone like you on the show who's also traveled is my ability to commute with others like I'm a 
purple politician. I'm red and blue, but I think I, I, I'm able to sway and no matter what the topic is, I can pick. Like, I don't just decide I'm blue and I'm automatically blue on everything. So, and I'm able to be friends. Another thing about being in business that forced me to learn is that I had to not be political in certain environments. You learn in business to commune with everyone. You know what I mean? It forced me to learn that at a young age. That was very valuable. I learned that I have to be able to get along with everyone because if I'm in business, I can't go into someone's house or have a client that all of a sudden is red or blue and I throw my political opinions at them. Right. So that's a lot about, for me, is a lot I've learned from how to commune with others. And wouldn't you say that's a crucial thing? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And coming from a background like yours, you've probably been around all kinds of people having lived in New Jersey, St. Louis, Minnesota for a short period of time, <laughs> uh, Utah, and you've flown all over the world, right? Haven't you flown all over the world? Where have you been? I mean, you've shown me your map, you've flown yeah. all over the world. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I've, I've been to 49 of the 50, still missing out on Alaska. But 49 of the 50 I'll... and 23, right? <laughs> 24, 24, but yeah. That's I'm... a good start. Yeah, I'm working on it, I'm working my way through. <laughs> as soon as you're a pilot, you're going to be like, it's going to have that same percentage for the country. <laughs> but yeah, you have a lot, you've been a lot of places, so don't you think that helps shape your perspective and open-mindedness? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it's kind of a two-tiered realization. It's like, on the one hand, you realize that people are people no matter where you are. You know, I, I, I've been, you know, in, in Colombia in one of the da- most dangerous kind of suburbs, uh, neighborhoods of uh, Bogota, walking around, and there's still somebody who's willing to help you find where you need to go, or, you know. I, I, I consider myself a decent Spanish speaker, but something with the dialect there, I couldn't communicate over the phone with the Uber driver who was calling me. There was a woman who came up, took my phone, said, you know, here, here's what you need to do, and there's, you know, people are willing to help you in an extent. But by the same token, there are some wildly different cultural values as you go across the, across the world. So I think that it, it goes pretty, it lends itself pretty well to what you were talking about earlier with, um, you know, how the what what are human rights what are I, I, you know everything ultimately is a cultural is through the, the context of a cultural concept you know so i'm not wording that very well but you know. no that's exactly <laughs> right everything you everywhere you go is through is contextualized based on the environment and the societal norms of that area so like if you fly into beijing or you fly into austin texas or you fly into london or you fly into Every society at the base of it is exactly what you just said. There's different human rights, different religious beliefs, different currencies, and different ideologies behind all of those. So it's a really interesting point when you start to realize that, 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 that like how there's such a variation. Like you start to realize how complex our world has become because of that. Like we were just reading about that, like you said at the hostel, like our big, one of our biggest threats is our size. Because I mean, you start to look at all the different religions in the world different human rights beliefs because you guys human rights if you look at it it's not a factual it's something we come up with at the base of our society that people come together and we come up with the ideologies and perspectives and opinions that then become law and legislation and if you look at what you just said everywhere all over the world there's different forms of that and that's remarkable and that's kind of insanely complex like don't just doesn't it almost seem like i always think of simple right we were talking about evolution last night and i think simple i think how can we remove complexities and have systems and principles over personalities so like to me why can't we just live in humanistic ideas remove religion and be like we're about the golden rule we're about treating others how we want to be treated and then also we're about working with others and being of service which are three spiritual concepts and essentially so simple and then we add all of these other complex things to it and it gets i mean if you try to picture a world where there's complete unity and we're all working together 
together. We're so powerful and we'd be so great together. But like all the obstacles to that, like it's just remarkable. Because what you just said, all those things are obstacles, wouldn't you say, to us unifying in a way? Because look at all those different opinions and Yeah, and I think there there's gonna be a something deep seated ultimately of just sort of the competitive nature of humans is, you know we wanna compete against each other and I think that it, Ultimately, that can do, that can devolve into you know armed conflict and uh, really rough stuff. So I I think there's a certain aspect of that. Is is there something genetically deep seated in us to want to fight each other? To want to to want to be like, okay, I'm gonna wake up and by the end of today, I'm going to be better than not just better than you know the, how I was the day before, which I think should be the goal. But how am I going to be better than the person next to me? How am I going to be better than someone? So I don't know. I I think that's, that's great insight, though. Yeah, that's a really good insight. Because a lot about what we talk about with media is about it's collaboration over competition. It's connected community. So I picture a community where people are connected and collaborating and working cohesively, and that requires a community that's ego-free. So I we always say, me and my brother, less ego and competition, more community connectedness and collaboration. And I think what you're talking about is a huge point because I think ego is a big part of the enemy. And I think if we remove that and we say we just compete with our best version, like I'm not competing with you, like we all, I think you're right. There's an innate sense of us to want to compete with others, but I think we can compete with us. Like me, I'm just trying to be the best me, and I'm not trying to look at like you or her or him or them or they and be like I'm better than them because everyone starts at different points in their life. Everyone has different skills and assets. I think we should. I think you're right, and this is a great point. I think we do have an innate sense of that, but I think we need to reverse it and switch it to more about like trying to be the best us instead of competing with others compete with you pushing you to be the best version and be better than you were yesterday that's what i try and do and i think that's big because that forces me to not look at competing with others but i think you just hit it on the head and i think there's a lot of great great value from that if we can talk about that i think it's a great point don't you think that people tend to live in that perspective that they have to always compete with their neighbor instead of cooperate with their neighbor it's so true oh yeah and it's kind of elementary Absolutely, and you know, in a, a microcosm that I can speak to from my my personal experience in the aviation industry, is I think that especially when you're starting out as a pilot, uh, kind of your qualifications and the, the discrimination between somebody who's more qualified and less qualified than you is extremely black and white. So you know, right now I have about 270 hours as a pilot. I am categorically less experienced, less hireable, less able to meet insurance minimums than a pilot with the same qualifications with 700 hours. It's just, there's no two ways about it. Wow. And so, you know, I guess what something that... Um, so he's less qualified but just has more hours. No, so the same, say the same qualifications for more hours. But, it, you know, it, with insurance, yes, if someone has 700 hours, a lot of insurance companies, they don't let you fly commercially unless you have 500 hours, which is just a fabrication of the industry. Um, so, yeah, in that sense. So, I guess so the big debate that's been happening in the aviation community is... Um, do we refuse to do we refuse to work as uh, underemployed, unemployed, uh, you know, overstocked, oversupplied pilots? Do we refuse to work uh, for less than what the going rate is? You know, you say, or or do we are we willing to undercut each other in order to be more competitive, in order to get our, our advantage? You know, so if you were to get you know the 
uh, an hour of instrument instruction from a from an experienced instrument instructor. That could run you about sixty, fifty to seventy dollars. Can I? Should I go in there as a underexperienced, unexperienced pilot and say, well, I'll give that same instruction but for twenty-five dollars? Just undercut that market. That's where a lot of debate is happening. I, I'm kind of of the mindset that no, that's not really appropriate because then you take that guy who's you know been busting his butt for 700 hours to get to the point he's at, and all of a sudden I'm bringing down the cost of uh, I'm bringing down the market value. But that's a really good question. So I think that's some really profound insight that a lot of people might not realize. But having I'm gonna lean into it. Uh, pricing strategy is one of the most dip, disruptive innovations you can have in business in any sector. So I started a moving company, and the first thing I considered when I entered the sector was, okay, I understand in business what my main enemy is obscurity. And when you're new, when you're an insurgent versus the incumbents like you're talking about, you are new. You don't have anyone's attention. So what you need to do then is you need to gain attention. You also then need to be the cheapest and still have five-star quality work. Because until you have a brand and a reputation of five-star quality work and the best service in the sector, no one's going to have any intention of using you unless you're the cheapest and you're the best quality and you have their attention. I learned this from my experience. So pricing strategy becomes essential because if you think about what you're saying, if you show up to the sector as a new guy in flight, no one's going to use you if you're the same price as the other guy. So I understand what you're saying, but at the same time, I do think that there's a freedom. This will be in some more great content. Is the freedom of competition where we naturally, in America, I think there is some freedom of marketplace that is beautiful. Where like if I show up for a marketplace and I'm a moving company and I want to offer my services 20 to 30 percent, what I did is I chose 20 to 33 percent. So every time I was on the phone with someone, I could say I'm 20 to 33 percent less than everyone else in the sector, and I'm gonna do five star quality work. I guarantee your satisfaction. People then instantly started using me, and then once I got people's attention, they sided five star work and had some good work behind my under my belt. Everyone started going with me, so I absorbed the market share and absorbed the majority of that work, and then I built up the portfolio of five star quality work. Where then I could then on the back end raise the price back up, and now I have the attention and the reviews to do that. So I think what you're talking about is a really big, big topic. It's about like the freedom of a but, but it's tricky with you guys because you're talking like, but, but like, what, that's interesting. Tell me more. So like when you're a pilot in the beginning, if, right now you could offer your services cheaper than you have. Like, how does that work? So once you're a pilot, it's more like structured. You get a base pay based on what yeah, you work. I mean, but like when you're starting where you are, you're just trying to log hours and you can charge for the rate. Or how does that yeah, work? Yeah. So, I mean, a, a lot of people, um, kind of the traditional quote unquote route of getting your airline hours is through flight instruction. So, I mean... What most people do is uh, they sign up to work for a flight school and yeah, your hours, your hourly rate is set by the flight school. Unfortunately, no one's really hiring right now, so uh, freelance might be the best a lot of us new guys can do. So like if a guy like me wanted to pay you $100 an hour, I could go out um, you. So I mean, uh, in, in concept, yes. Uh, what I'm going for right now is a certificate to teach people who already have their private license and teach them how to fly to no visible, with no visible, with no visual reference to the outside. So, but it, yeah, somebody who was getting their airplane instructor, yeah, their airplane instructor certificate, yeah, they could take someone just fresh off the street and yeah, just teach them how to fly. So, what you almost say there would be, so I always think about everything in an insert 
like new innovation way. So like, uh, if I thought about the airline and I was going to be a pilot, it's coming from my, my perspective of a small and scale insurgent business owner, I would enter and think, how could I do something different that no one else has done? And I would think, how can I just brand myself? I'd get that license and I'd be like, okay, how can I go help people that... But that might, but I just find that really interesting. That sounds super cool. It sounds like there's a lot of area for like freedom in that in a sense. Like, couldn't you see someone maybe starting a business? Like there are people that have businesses that just do that, right? Oh yeah, no, there's uh, actually, um, to give a shout out to Venture North Aviation. Shout out, which Venture is, North Aviation. Is that where you went? <laughs> That's where I'm going right now. So yeah, they're Venture in. Venture North Aviation. They're in, Get on the show. Come on, Venture <laughs> They're in Cloquet in Carlton County. Um, and yeah, they have an extremely interesting business model because um, traditionally the way that it's structured is like, okay, you're you're a flight school, you're you're an in, you're an instructor for a flight school. You may have like 12 to 15 to 20 students all at once, and they come in for you know one to one, two, three hours a week, and you just go through a rotation. Venture North, uh, and there's a few other flight schools that do this across the country, but they're definitely in the, the stark minority, is they say, okay, we'll give you this, this, this certificate that usually takes, you know, three months to do, and we'll just, we'll set you one-on-one, you get one instructor assigned to you, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., Monday through Friday, it's, you know, 40 hours, which is probably, if you're doing, you know, over the course of 20 weeks, two hours a week, evens out yeah one-on-one so if you really need to get your stuff done five days you get yeah you you get your your certificate and uh that's what you went with yeah and they they from from what i've heard they're always booked out you know five six months in advance completely full schedule because people love their business model they love uh they love flying with them they um that's awesome so that sounds really innovative and different and unique so basically, you get one-on-one, and you can do your whole thing in less than what? A week or two? Two weeks? Yeah, I mean, it depends on the... How on the fast are you doing it? So yeah, my... I'm, so my... Uh, it's called the CFII. It's the uh, Certificate of Flight Instructor Instrument. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm doing that as my initial flight instructor rating. And um, I'm doing it... We had five days of instruction, and then, you know, we kind of got a little bit messed up with the holiday weekend and so I, I finished on Friday. We did another touch-up on Saturday just because we could. And then Tuesday, tomorrow, first business day. So we will probably be done. Night. So you're talking less than about seven days. Then. Seven days for something that would usually take like two months. That's insane. Yeah. Especially when you're trying to look at a consumer who's a... Who's so once I dive into all my business strategy and ideas, the consumers, they're, friction, they're addicted to friction-free living, right? Harvard Business School study shows that you can Google this. Everyone te- always, I always say Google it because that's where I learned it. But the consumer is always spending their time working to try and have money to then have control of their time. We're all pursuing time control, which leads us to then be addicted and have a misperception of speed and have a misperception of time. Whereas if we were time rich and we had control of all of our time, we wouldn't spend all of our money paying for services or solutions or I or uh, concepts that bring us more time if you think about it it makes sense like uber eats stuff like grocery delivery it's all about speed if you think about amazon business is on the business all comes down to superlative service and logistics and if you look at amazon it's a great example as well they bring you something you can click an order and it's there and you're at your front door in the snap of a finger it's logistics it's fast speedy logistics with five-star quality service the guy just keeps driving by apparently <laughs> weird um 
they just got their FAA, they just got their FAA approval to uh, to fly drones for uh, for their delivery service. I don't know too much about it. That's huge. So yeah. exactly. So you realize that the consumer, once you start to realize this, manipul- a lot of businesses are manipulating that. Like if you see all, people don't realize it because they don't dive into this. But when you see the 5G ads that just went out recently, they're saying 5G faster than everything else. When really it's a really kind of bullshit because there's a point where speed, there's speed bonded at zero. So there's a point if you look at the graph where it starts to flatten out. Like it's high and then it comes down and flattens out. So speed is bonded at zero. So there's only a certain point where speed actually saves you time but it leads us to overpay for like internet downloading speed all these things phone services we all are time poor in america because we spend all of our time doing something we don't enjoy and we naturally are trying to pursue control of our time and we then end up spending our money trying to buy back more time to have the time to do what we love it's really interesting so i think that's really interesting when you look at that and you're trying to run a business model or have a business model because it sounds like what they're doing is they're allowing the speeding up process of, of that industry that sounds really cool that's oh absolutely safe. you can do it now you're done that's rad now you're in, within 7 to 8 days 9 days or whatever 10 days or less you can have something that normally would have took 2 months yeah so I mean in theory now that's uh, that's you know uh, 7 weeks of now having this certificate and being able to earn money and being able to actually use it so shout out back. to what Venture North America Venture North Aviation they're Run out of Cloquet Carlton County Airport, uh, just south uh, southwest of Duluth. God, that's super cool. So yeah, I just think about that when I think about pricing. But then when you think about airline pricing, it's really interesting. We were talking okay, about that. Yeah, yeah. Like it just seems like they have a they have a power and a monopoly. And to me, when I think about airline pricing, I think about monopoly. It just comes down to me like it seems like they all, like you said, can come together and pretty much charge whatever they want. Obviously, COVID is changing everything, but like. Yeah. yeah. What's your take on that? Do you think do you think that pricing in airlines fair, or do you think it's regulated? Like, do you think pricing should be regulated in some fields and industries? Well, I mean, it's interesting because you know airlines have been deregulated since the '70s, and uh, I I don't think that you could really apply much of what was going on then with kind of anything uh, in any in any practical sense to what's going on now. Um, I would say it's less of a well, let's come together and agree how we're going to gouge people, but it's more of a how much can I how how much can I afford to lose to stay competitive in this one in this one route, and then how much can I manage to gain in this other? That's all completely intricately linked to what the others are charging. So, like as we were saying, if you go right now on Google yeah. or on Kayak and you try to find a flight from you know New York to JFK, the most prestigious route that you know you could have. So JFK to Georgia, right? Is the one? No, JFK to LAX. LAX. Yeah. Um, you know that's your most prestigious domestic route. You're gonna have your most senior, expensive crews doing that. Uh, you're gonna have expensive to maintain aircraft. That one-way ticket is probably gonna cost you barely two hundred fifty dollars, maybe even less with gold. But then if you were to go and look and and from Denver to Hayden, Colorado, from Steamboat Springs, that area, just that, the, the ski area that only United is going to fly, it's going to cost you five, six, seven hundred dollars for that one ticket. And the reason being is this if you want to fly from JFK to LAX, off the top of my head, American flies that, United flies that, JetBlue flies that, and I'm sure that a few other airlines that are in the low cost field fly that. Yeah. And, you know, United will fly that same route out of Newark. They all have to keep competitive with each other, 
and they need to make that service. They need to make that a quality service to earn that, to earn your loyal, to earn your loyalty, not just your dollars too. Because out of JFK and LAX, all those airlines, well, hey, we also fly to Australia, we fly to London, we fly to to Rome, we fly to to you know Hong Kong. They want to they want to get those people to do that. On the flip side, you take you know Steamboat Springs. United is just sitting there saying, like, if you live in Denver and you want to go to Steamboat Springs, you you know you're taking us or you're taking an Uber, you know. So they know that they can they can charge that even though they're taking some of the most junior crews on a regional airline that's flying a 50-seater jet the, the operating cost of the crew alone is probably less than a quarter but they know that they can gouge for that because that's just if you're i don't even know if may, maybe uh delta flies to steamboat springs out of out of salt lake i'm not sure but if you're in denver you're not looking at that delta ticket and being like okay to get to steamboat springs i'm gonna fly all the way across colorado into utah and all the way back across colorado to get there it's you know, it's, it's the opportunity cost of the time. Totally. So it's interesting when you think about that and all. I think you made a great point with the loyalty and trust. A lot about everything I do is about loyalty and trust with what we do at We Are In Media. Especially when you're in business, everything comes down to loyalty and trust. If you think about it, like we just read that article too about Yuval Harari. In any industry or any kind of trading that's being done, you, there has to be trust involved. That's why I talk a lot about my, my stories about my mom passing away, me having a drug addiction to heroin me being in jail and having some struggles as well as having successes sculpting statues traveling and starting a moving company because that's what makes me different and that's what makes me authentic and vulnerable just as many people that aren't going to use me because of that will use me because of it because i'm being authentic and vulnerable and i feel like trust and loyalty i think that's a really great point you also made is that it's not just about the money it's also about earning people's trust and loyalty. absolutely yeah that's a great point so that stuff gets it's really complex really but at the same time when you think about it it's kind of simple it's pricing strategy it's earning trust and loyalty and it's all kind of it, ha- it has basic simple calculations but the algorithms behind it i don't know much about but i it's just really interesting well they're fascinating it is fascinating because having been in business and realizing how simple it is if i show up to a business sector like if you picture a new company that somehow had the money to get into aviation and they did it cheaper than everyone and they flew everywhere they would probably be one of the most they probably one of the busiest airlines in the nation oh sure i mean you look at um you look at the ultra low cost carriers that have come in like spirit and frontier and uh maybe the, they did really well they do really well a lot of them, right? yeah um so i know i i don't know that i can speak so so strongly to those two because i've never been su- super intricately involved with them i know that jet blue is doing has been historically doing very well and their kind of model is like okay let's disrupt the model let's disrupt the standard business model Let's disrupt this hub and spoke system of, you know, everybody flies from small city to big city to another small city. And let's just find enough small cities that we can just fly back and forth there. Um, but yeah, no, I, uh, I think that if you were to come in and start undercutting everyone, uh, price-wise, price-wise, still offer flights a lot of almost everywhere. Yeah. And I mean, again, it's, it's getting into that infrastructure. Like if you can establish that infrastructure, you have enough capital to do that. Yeah, I think probably thrive, right? You can you can disrupt the market. You can probably really cut into people's profits, which I think is really interesting. But how does it? I wonder. I would. I want to lean into more of this because I'm always I've been interested in flying. I've never like if I did have to have a job, I've always <laughs> been in, in, someone that wants to do have control of what the who the what the when the where the why of my life. And in order to do that, I need to be my own boss. So that's me. But if I did think of a job, I always thought of a pilot. Yeah. 
and I don't know the regulations, but if someone did want to open an airline, how do you do that? Is that regulated by the government? Oh, absolutely. And you have absolutely, have absolutely. So, like, it's only probably the, like, look, who are the owners of Delta? Uh, are they privately owned? A lot of the airlines. They're publicly traded. They're publicly um, traded, privately owned, though, a lot of them? Uh, you know, that's a good question. I, believe. I don't even know. It's just interesting, because, like, you say they're such powerhouses. You would think all these power, like, they're powerhouses. If you want to get into the game, like, it's not, like, anyone little. Yeah, no, I mean, there's kind of a saying in aviation that, like, if you want to make a, if you want to make a small fortune in aviation, the best way to do it is to start out with a large fortune, and it kind of goes to the nature of uh, of that beast. They do show the CEOs and founders and the presidents. Yeah. Wow. Delta made forty-seven billion dollars last year, and it only cost them six billion to operate. Oh, really? That's like a seven, seven, eight x return on investment. Wow. Well, that's interesting. I know any of that, so that's really cool to think about. Yeah, and it's you have this kind of uh, this very extreme situation of an industry that aviation is remarkably cash poor because you make your money, which is an issue. Oh, it's a tremendous issue because you know you take COVID. All these airlines, they're massively asset rich. You know, they have billions of dollars in the form of uh, terminals and. Uh, and uh, jets and fuel and everything, but here yeah, hard assets. Yeah, here's the thing: when a pandemic hits and everyone was really laying into the airlines, they're like, "Oh, how could they make all this money?" And you know, all of a sudden they're broke. Well, you know, they have millions and millions of dollars, but they're all just sitting there in the par- in the in the in the California desert in the form of parked jets. Because you, you can't you can't just say you know on the street or go to Sears or you know on, or just like open up a Craigslist ad and say hey man you want to buy a 737 exactly. you know especially when there's no market so it's interesting it's all the so much of the money that's made gets just dumped right back into renovating and expanding and showing growth you know? that's a really interesting point so a lot of the key characteristics of the founders mentality which I talk about we're in media and are there several key characteristics but one of the main one is having a strong cash focus as all having it's called an owner's mindset you know as an owner's mindset like when i start a company my first thought is not investors and debt and using credit it's about how can i generate money to make this a positive asset so a lot of people go into business and the first thing they do is they take a bunch of money and they build a fancy little office and they take on because they have good credit or they have maybe some money saved and they dump 100 or 200k into a building 300k or 400k and then they take investors money and they have a five million dollars in investors and they're not really they're more like they're just not real it's like a real business is someone that can open an office rent a cheap office for two three hundred dollars a month and then you can generate two to three grand and then you turn it into six grand and now you're cash flowing instantly and i think it's a key point because one of the key characteristics in the founders mentality book is just that having a strong cash focus as an owner a lot of do it the opposite in business and having a strong cash focus and not leaning on other people for debt is I think that's a huge issue and based on my experience because I think you overextend yourself you put yourself at risk whereas if you're always focused on cash focus you know if this happens I'm safe you're liquid you're flexible and I think that's crucial because like if you save up say we go into business together me and you are doing a business and we both have five grand cash or 50 grand cash and we start to try and just look at ways to generate money with that instead of borrowing against it or generating investors i think that it, it's it's more secure because like what you're saying is 
scary. We think about airlines. Like, that's why a lot of them are risking going bankrupt right now. Oh, absolutely. And and that's it, scary to me. Yeah. Because those things, when you try and sell a plane or a car, you, they're talking about massive depreciation. You're talking about oh, absolutely. incredibly hard to liquidate. It's not liquid at all. So it's no. very not. It's very much the opposite of having a strong cash focus. It's like rigid and difficult to convert to money. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the things also that we run into in the aviation industry today is it doesn't strictly have to be profitable anymore. I mean, in, in these la- this last half decade or so, it has been, and that's been great. But uh, if you actually look, the government does uh, pump a massive amount of, uh, money. of money into subsidizing what's called essential air service routes. Uh, so it's like, for example, if you're in Thief River Falls, yeah. you know, middle of nowhere northwestern minnesota with all due respect to the people who live there thanks for being with us folks (laughs) it's kind of uh it's kind of out there there's an airline called boutique airlines that used to fly you know pilatus is these six passenger aircraft direct to minneapolis and you can buy a ticket for 40 dollars. there is no way that you can turn a profit off that 40 something dollar ticket so what they're doing is they're taking these subsidies for what you know the government considers them to be a greater a greater good because now you can have all these businesses that exist in Thief River Falls. Totally. So it's interesting how it's it's all interconnected. So like profitability in one industry isn't directly linked, in my opinion, to whether or not a business that big should succeed or fail. Because if you were to kick out boutique, for example, all of a sudden now all these businesses are left on an island and you've got this office in Thief River Falls and how are you gonna get all these people in and out and how are you gonna conduct these business meetings and stuff. So that's a great point there. So what that's another thing you were talking about back at the hostel folks. So if you read about my we Weirman X model and the and the X effect. I mean the S effect, sorry, so it's the Weirman X model and the S effect. It's all about these these few books I mention all the time over and over again, the founder's mentality uh, Yuval Harari's uh, Brief History of Mankind, Homo Sapiens, I believe it is, and then The Innovator's Dilemma. What he's talking about, I think the airline is very vulnerable right now, and I think it gives a, shines a big light on it. I think it shines a light on rigid, bureaucratic, complex processes, and I think uh, technology, so The Innovator's Dilemma is the book that states when massive companies fail because of technology, and I think it's just a time, matter of time before you, uh, someone like Elon Musk or a scale insurgent-like company comes along and invents a speed train or a bullet train or an underground bullet train or an above-ground bullet train where you can then take bullet trains like they have in China and other places from New York to LA for less than and then there's going to be a huge threat. I just think a lot of times I pay attention. One of the main reasons we survive as a species and we are able to sustain is we enter an arena or an environment and we identify threats. Like if I'm the gladiator in the movie The Gladiator, he was great at surviving because he eliminated his threats. He could see them coming and he took them out. And when we're, we naturally as humans and the species have a negative bias for that. We always look for the negative and things or the threats and the vulnerabilities. Absolutely. But I think big companies like this fail to do that. They're not constantly auditing because they're so powerful and so big they get to a point where they don't think they have to when really all it takes is one major invention and then the airline industry really I mean obviously this is a a little extreme but you know Elon Musk is working on uh, bullet trains and stuff that sort have you heard about that? I have yeah and I'll be I'll be honest it terrifies me not because I think it's going to be unsafe or because I think that uh, that it's going to be this catastrophe or that it's completely impossible but I think that you know it's 
I think we have this tendency to think that things that are threatening to us can't happen. So like, that's been the thing. Like, for pilots, the big fear has been automation. You know, already kind of, uh, if you're if you're flying commercially, the the kind of standard operating procedures. I'm sure it's gonna it's gonna vary slightly by company. Is okay. You've got all your information. You take off. You get you know a thousand or so feet above the ground. Engage autopilot. Monitor. Make the changes. It's not like you're not doing anything, but the autopilot's flying the plane. Then you know you're doing that approach into the into the airport, a few hundred feet above the ground. Autopilot disengage. Take it back off. And I think that you know there's the argument like, oh well, we're always going to need people. We're always you know it'll just take one autopilot crashing 300 people into the ground and it'll be gone forever. And I think that you know it's a threat. It narrows our it narrows our perception as pilots to think that oh well you know this massive curve of technological innovation and improvement that's been occurring over these last few decades. I think that it's absolutely ludicrous to say, okay, no, here's the line in the sand. We can't do this. Won't work. You know, we've, automation has already made the flight engineer obsolete in the United States for the most part, and I think that it's probably only a matter of time. We'll probably see it in cargo first that the first officer becomes obsolete, and eventually, probably on the airline side, it'll it'll come too. And it's it's frightening. It's terrifying. The timeline's not set. But I think that's a great perspective and so I want to lean into that because I think it's a great point in artificial intelligence and AI because uh, I did an episode on this not that long ago as well is the threat that technology represents in eliminating a lot of jobs and the use and the creating the useless class of a lot of humans that are going to be now taken from their job and I think as a pilot you have a unique perspective to that right is I think a lot of us we never think or see our threats we don't see it coming but as and that's powerful having perspective and awareness to your threat that's the number one, that's why I say my perspective is my most valuable tool in life, because having perspective and awareness brings us insight, and like you said, it doesn't, it, it causes us to be aware and have insight and perspective to our threats, and what you're talking about is a job where it just so happens to be so close to that technology and innovations that you see it coming, and I think that's so true, and I've, Andrew Yang wrote a book about it, and it's, it's coming, it's just a matter of time before cars oh, driving, it's just a matter of when, it's not if, yeah. you said that last night, you said it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Right, and you know, again, it's we can't use the standards of like, oh, you know, well, trains, you know, they they still have a, an, an engineer on them just in case, or you know, oh, well, that technology, it's got to be decades away from implementation, and the cost of implementation is going to delay it for years. And, you know, that that is true. Like a lot of our region, a lot of our regional aircraft are going to be flown on planes that were originally designed in the 90s probably they were produced later but you know the cost of implementation is going to be a significant barrier but for us to just say you know i don't like this i don't like this principle so i'm just going to dismiss it i think it's extremely dangerous and it's sad you know yeah totally so a big part about what we do at Weird media what i'm going to be selling to business owners is the merging of empirical principles with so my weirman x model merges inspection uh, so it's auditing slash inspection with a transparency and adaptation. So what we're talking about is essential to what you're talking about because if you're always someone that's auditing, like that's why I always talk about like organism and scientific stuff because organisms are constantly living and breathing their environment, right? 
So the characteristics of evolution are so essential to be aware to in business because an organism is living and breathing their environment. So they're identifying threats and vulnerabilities and they're constantly adapting and changing. And someone that's conditioned and fit, no matter what arena they enter, they're conditioned and fit for paying attention to what they need to and, and auditing, inspecting and adapting to that environment to sustain. And I think there's a correlation that you can use that with business where that's what we're doing. We're bringing that. If you merge empirical principles of being transparent, honest, vulnerable, and authentic with adapting and adaptation via auditing and inspection, and then merge that with focus, courage, commitment, respect, and so forth, you're going to then have a lot more success. And I think you'll be able to identify those threats and you'll be able to change and be liquid. And I think a lot of these big things like airline and stuff that you talk about, they really lack that ability they're so big and they're so rigid that I just think that you're right. I think those, the bigger it gets and the more, like, airline, I think the more vulnerable it is because when something like that does happen, I really do think that's when you're going to see something completely new come. But yeah, it's just a really cool perspective to hear from you and, and see that from the, because, I mean, essentially you're saying that you're, uh, the pilot's just there to uh, be precautionary. Like, if, if the systems fail, you're there to help save the lives. Yeah, and I mean, again, the, the role of the pilot in modern aviation and in aviation in the past and for the foreseeable future is one of colossal tremendous importance you can't understate that and just say like oh you know the, the autopilot is performing the basic flying task totally. so you know pilots are still worth every cent they're paid well let's just lean into that too because i agree because the pilot is in, in the human and the traits that are irreplaceable the subjectiveness the ability to problem solve and be creative and imagination i agree 100 percent when those engines fail and everything on, and everyone on that plane is at risk, I think the human has that capability to be creative in imagination and maybe make something happen where a robot might not be able to land that plane in the Ohio River or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, absolutely. So I agree 100%. So the end of that, and I think that's I think you're 100% right. Yeah. Like, like the pilot being irreplaceable in, some, in the human in some sense. Yeah, and I mean, I, I guess nowadays it's a bit of a candy example because, you know, it's just it been such a huge thing that, you know, you take... Uh, Captain Sullenberger of the U.S. Airways, you know, was pretty about, epic. Yeah, you know, this guy. The amazing thing was, Sullenberger was already a massive player in the aviation safety arena. He was, you know, very accomplished in the military. Was already on it. The FAA had a, like a task force or a board of, a, of uh, safety safety experts. He was already on that when that happened. But yeah, it's a wa- force landings in water are just something that we in aviation really really well it's 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 a last resort is what it is so i mean i'm very doubtful that any kind of computer could have safely landed that plane in the, in the middle of the hudson dodging the bridges and going through there and reevaluating like oh okay you know we're not going to be able to make it to uh to teeterboro we're not going to be able to make it back to jfk or wherever they uh, wherever else they tried to go um so i think yeah that aspect of a, of the pilot's responsibility is going to protect his job, at least the captain's job, for years to come. But, you know, the question is how long and how many. You know, is it going to be the captain only, or is it going to be the captain and the first officer? Or, you know, I think that's really cool, though, realizing that, because I always look at that, like, with the Andrew Yang book coming out and artificial intelligence so so forth, I do think when I read about Yuval Harari's brief history of mankind and homo sapiens and you talk about the AI which is coming, I do agree that ultimately the traits of the human are irreplaceable that like um, 
being creative in our imagination and our problem solving is 100% irreplaceable. And I think that's a great, great point. And I think a lot of people don't realize that, that there is some sense of security within that. I think that's a great point. Yeah, so I just think it's really interesting and great topics and really cool to have dialogue on and a lot of people, they never like are open to dialogue. I feel like when you look at Schultz, like Joe Rogan, and you look at politics and you look at our environments we have, there's not many people, and I've, I've actually dived into it, and when you look at our addiction to speed and friction-free, the consumer moves really fast, so they're not really ever listening. And I don't think there's a lot of environments where there's true dialogue, where one guy can talk and I listen, and then you talk, and I listen, and I really am listening, and I'm neutral, and I'm not married to my ideas, my perspectives, and I, I believe in them, because that's me and what I believe in, but I have someone like you on my show or in my life, and I can listen, truly listen via open dialogue, and then I can shape new ideas and become more well-rounded because of it, and I feel like Joe Rogan is an example of this that's done really well with it, because... I just feel like there's a lot of places where that doesn't happen. And if you think about last night when we were at the hostel, that's the primary example for me, is like guys were all like, like all of a sudden playing music. Like you start talking about something real, and I feel like a lot of people, they don't want to talk about it or right, they don't, they don't want, want to, to listen. Necessarily. Yeah, and they don't want to be challenged. And they, like me and my brother had an episode on that. Like they don't want to have someone challenge their ideas or their perspectives. And they don't even want to listen. Listen, like at all. Like why not? Like when I see someone like you or someone that I hear like talk and they're open to it and like I'm like all about it because like I love having guys like you on the show because it forces me to see stuff from your perspective and your background and then it forces me to grow. And since I started the show, it's just really cool having people that are willing to get vulnerable be authentic and real and get on the show and share their perspectives and share it with the world because a lot of people they'll talk about stuff in the comment section and it's like a really crucial time in this world there's a lot of crazy shit happening and people just want to be haters in the comment section and have all all the answers from the back row but then when it comes time to like actually like have serious open dialogue it just doesn't happen a lot of places i feel like yeah no i think that's very accurate and I, I think Joe Rogan's show is a great example of open dialogue where he's open to like hearing stuff. Don't, have you seen any of that? Uh, I actually haven't gotten a chance, though. No. But, but yeah, so I appreciate you coming on the show and being vulnerable and sharing your story and opinions and perspectives, man. That's really, really cool of you. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, I appreciate it. So once again, folks, it's not right, it's not wrong. At Weirman Media, it is simply our perspective. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, Podcast Nation, thanks for tuning in. Your attention is our ox. Please like, share, and subscribe for a better chance at being the next loyal brand follower mentioned at the end of our next show. Shout out to at Gary V for being the inspiration behind the Two Brothers TV as well as the Two Brothers Podcast. Thanks, Gary V. That is at G-A-R-Y-V-E-E on Instagram. Remember, it's not right, it's not wrong, it is simply our perspective.